How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The Province Sports Podcast. Welcome to the White Towel Podcast, uh, first of 2020. Paul Chapman joined by Ed Willis and Ben Kuzma. Gentlemen, how are you? Good, good. How are uh, you? Happy New Year. Fav- favorite line of the new year from, from colleague Steve Simmons, 2020, the year of hindsight. Very uh, good. Not yes. bad. Yeah, 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 not bad. This is for Simmons. <laughs> Look, I, I was going to say this, like it, it, debate I've had before. It's the eighth, even though it's our first broadcast or podcast, whatever you want to call it, of the new year. Is it too late to be wishing people a happy new year still? Wow. Like how, Um, like like if you, if you see someone for the first time in 2020 on, on January 27th, do you still wish them a happy new year? I think that first week back you can, but, but I think now that we're into week two, I, I don't know. I I think it's gone. I, yeah, it's, it's a little like wearing the poppy after November 11th. Yeah. Kind of. See, it's uh, complicated for me because you see Uh uh, yesterday, January 7th is Ukrainian Christmas. Oh, well. So Ukrainian New Year's is on January 14th. And I didn't get you anything. <laughs> you didn't get me anything. So now what we usually get is a, a lot of added weight over the month because, you know, you observe both Christmases. So you really now, do you, up. Do you do the traditional 12-course uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, to, New Year's yeah, Eve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the best I could do the other night was some bad pierogies from some store. Yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, Dave, Dave, you, you know Dave Kamosky was my former boss in Winnipeg. But his last name would suggest proud Ukrainian. And he tried to do... The twelve course feast, which is the traditional <laughs> way to do it, and he got about five. He got about five courses in, and then he would just throw pickles out and cause cause. A, so we had seven courses of pickles on our traditional Ukrainian New Year's Eve dinner. You make it work somehow. So I didn't get you anything, but what the Canucks did get was a stuffing last night. Oh, mm, no, good segue! Right. Wow, um, right. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, not just the game last night, but. Um, we're going to talk, obviously, about what transpired over the festive period in the Canucks hot streak. Um, look a little bit at some of their numbers. Uh, we'll get into their next 10 games and what lies ahead for them. And then we will talk a little bit about uh, the Canucks 50th anniversary series as we are now into the 90s. Another very eventful year for the Canucks. So I will throw this out to both of you to start. Uh, what happened in Tampa Bay? Yeah, I, I thought a bill came due. They hadn't. I, I know they'd won seven games in a row, and and you know the, the the standard sports line is you never critique a law or you never critique a win, and given everything this organization has been through the last four years, I mean the seven wins in a row is a landmark achievement. But there were holes in their game. There's they they went on a four game winning streak there. Uh, 
right after they lost to Montreal, where they get shot, outshot 152 to, uh, to, to 102. over, And they win all four, basically, because Jacob Markstrom is providing this otherworldly level of goaltending. And I think what we saw in, in Tab, it should be a wake-up call to them. Um, what happens when they don't get that, you know, that elite, 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 unsustainable quality of goaltending. Uh, so I, I just hope they're paying attention. Just to follow up on what Ed said, you know, yeah, you don't, winning solves everything and losing exposes the ugly things. And like you mentioned, they were getting away with wins during the streak that they had no business winning. Of course, the Ranger game uh, where Markstrom makes 49 saves, a career high, uh, stood out. I I just think what what occurred in Tampa, it was the best thing for them. I mean, if they lose that game 4-2 in an empty net goal, it's like, you know, we, we played well enough. We were close. When you get slapped around like that, it reminded me of the game in Pittsburgh in late November. They're up 6-3 midway through the third period, and Malkin says, well, that's enough of that. He has a five-point game. They get hammered 8-6. And a lot of the kids look like a deer in the headlights that night, and I thought there was a lot of similarities last night. I mean, what do you say after two periods? It's well, 2-2 at one point. Well, that was the crazy thing. They get that bizarre goal there, and it's 2-2 with, like, what, five minutes left in the second period. You figure they're going to get it into the third, and, you know, maybe they find a way to get a point out of that. Maybe they bounce one in off somebody's ass again and get, get out of it because, quite frankly, that's the way they've been getting a lot of their wins lately. But but, but I, I agree. It's, you know, the, the, this is like – this was like a textbook case of everything that they've been doing wrong for two weeks, but but they've been getting away with. So one thing I'll ask I'll ask Ben to start and Ed, your thoughts as well. You know, when you see so many goals in rapid succession like that, and you talk about a meltdown, and it just, I, I got to laugh. It reminded me of that game in, in Chicago where Chelsea Dagger became burned into our memory just because it was so many times in a row in short succession. So in a case like that, obviously you, you lift the goalie, you're hoping for a lift. Maybe, you know, it's a message to the rest of the team. Maybe it's a message to the goalie. Maybe it's just a reset. You're trying to save Jacob Markstrom from, from more embarrassment, but um, when you see a meltdown in such a concentrated period of time there, was that Markstrom losing his focus? And as you guys say, a bill coming due, or was it other stuff going on in the ice for you or a combination? Well, I know that Markstrom wouldn't be happy with, uh, the one rebound he put right into the slot that turned into a goal, a puck going through him and trickling across the goal line. Uh, the, you know, tracking is a big thing with goalies and, and there's a lack of, uh, concentration there. And even on the breakaway where he got beat, uh, stick side, I thought he, committed too early but having said that it's really picking away at a guy who's who really ha- ha- has his game under him I think the thing that surprised me when they got down 4-2 where where was the timeout you know where, you know Travis Green has talked about well we're really careful with that timeout maybe we, we can do it during a TV timeout players have talked about taking greater ownership of the bench and on the ice and maybe making sure the younger guys have their head on straight uh, that's going to be an on, ongoing thing with this hockey club but uh as far as the goaltending goes, I, I, I'm surprised that he wasn't yanked a little bit earlier. And uh, let's be honest, they're going to need him the rest of the way. So I, I would have pulled him maybe after, I don't know which goal, a little bit earlier, maybe after 4-2. It was just going that way. It was trendy. And you could see it. And Bo Horvat talked about it after the game. He said, you know what? When it was 2-2, we thought, you know what? We're going to get a point out of this. And he said, we, we kind of sat back. And if you watch the way the Canucks play, it's not sexy. It's north-south. It's get the puck in. It's get a turnover. It's jam it in. Let's do something on the power play. But their back check, their shot suppression is her, her, horrendous. And you, talk, you can talk about the defense all we want. 
and how it doesn't defend well enough. But look at the gaps between the forwards and the defense. Uh, that was a real wake-up call in Tampa, and we'll see what they can uh, right the ship in Florida. Ed, you used an interesting word, unsustainable level of goaltending from Jacob Markstrom, um, and he has been excellent. So was he papered over the cracks, or was last night just you know a game where, as you said, like eventually they were going to run out of steam somewhere? Yeah, well, look, I, I think everybody recognized going into this season the Canucks needed elite goaltending to stay in the playoff race. Now, the question is, you know, how how would you define elite? I, I would say anything. I'd say 918 save percentage. 918 to 920 is kind of is kind of what they what what they require for Markstrom, and he, I I can't remember the numbers what, it, what the numbers he put up going over that over that seven game winning streak, and I know Demko had one win in there, but it, it it was much higher than that. I think over the length of the season, if they get that 918 to 920 out of Markstrom, that's about that that that's sort of realistic, and it would still represent a career season for him. Uh, so, so so there's that. Um, he is part of the the recipe, a big, big part of the recipe. In fact, I would say he's probably, if you're going to prioritize the things that Canucks need to be successful, I think that goaltending is probably one, along with the power play, along with the production of Patterson and the young guys. Uh, but, but, but the goaltending is right up, right up at the top. When you look back through Canucks history, though, you know, maybe maybe the year that they lost in Anaheim to a good Ducks team and it was Luongo was yeah, literally, yeah. you know, the Sedins hadn't truly blossomed yet, but you knew it was like Luongo standing on his head every night. This team's supposed to be better than that. This team is supposed to have talent. So, you know, how come they aren't carrying their load more than the goaltender? They've had trouble defending all year, wouldn't you? Wouldn't trouble you, defending, you yeah. That? And we kind of gloss over the fact that, yeah, they score. They score on the power play, but they don't score at even strength. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're 20th in the league at even strength scoring. You're not going to make it to the dance. They've got to probably have 23 wins in their remaining games to get to that 94-96 bar to get into the playoffs. It's doable. And like you said, goaltending, you're not going anywhere without goaltending. And there is a back-to-back on this trip. So you can do the Markstrom-Demko thing, but it's more than just Markstrom. It's what's happening in front of him and not what not happening in front of him. I, I see him, you talk about 918, 2.69, that area, goals against average. These are career numbers for Markstrom. He's not that guy who couldn't handle the position, who couldn't handle us years ago and everything he's gone through with the passing of his father. Quite frankly, I thought he was going to have a meltdown. It would have been when he came back to the team in that game in MSG when they were under siege. In the third period, they won the game, and he let everybody know after what was going on. So. But if you if you look at, you know, obviously, and as we will talk about the Canucks' fiftieth anniversary later, and how their history is littered with goalies who were always their strongest player. But Kurt Ridley, for example, and can, we have a poster of him. So he Spider must have been great. <laughs> Ridley got that poster just on the basis of his mask. But uh, no disrespect to Kurt. But you know this. Looking ahead now to the Canucks, you talk about Markstrom career numbers, Ben. He is, I don't want to call him a late bloomer, but he's hitting this elite stage later in his career. Contract coming up, wants to be paid. You figure this is his, this is his meal ticket, right? This will be his biggest contract. What do the Canucks do? I mean, is Demko happy playing second fiddle longer? Do you have to take into a couple of concussions into effect with Demko? I mean, honestly, how big a question is this for the front office as as you head towards whether it's the trade deadline or the offseason, whatever you want I think it's at. a big one because, I, to be honest, I think they they wanted to see with, them, uh, with Markstrom running with the ball again, what's it going to be like through the first half? 
what's it going to be like if we get into a stretch drive run here? Night after night. Demko simply hasn't played enough games. You referenced the two concussions, Paul, in 15 months. He just doesn't have the body of work yet. So if you're Jim Benning and you're sitting down with your negotiating team, uh, the one thing Jim said to me a while ago was a little disturbing to me. He said he thought Markson could play for another six or seven years. Well, he's turning 30. You mean six or seven years somewhere else? Or I, I, To me, it's I would be comfortable in an extension that's probably not beyond three years because of Demko and because of DiPietro. But by the same token, you've got the expansion draft in Seattle. And you've also got a situation where you're going to get into this term versus money. If you can get them on a shorter deal, they're going to push for more. If uh, you go long, you might get them at a bargain price. So I, I don't, you know, you look at comparables out there. The question is, is he a $6 million goalie? I think that's what they're wrestling with. Expansion drafts and goalies. Maybe we should have a John Van Beesburg poster. <laughs> um, Ed, what would you do with the goaltending situation? Uh, see, I'm fascinated by this. Because, yeah, it, is, it, it, because it really the, is a yeah, great no, no, question. No, because no, no, the economics of the goaltending position is completely different than the other positions on the ice. I, I, from the Canucks' point of view, I'm pretty confident in saying I, I think they want him in that Freddie Anderson 5.5 range. They think they can get him there, and that'll probably mean a bit of a longer term. Uh, and I know Markstrom's camp is going to look, no, he's the number one, number one. The number starts with a six. He's also a UFA, so you you know does that does that inflate it a, a bit? So there's going to be a real kind of push and pull here to try and bring him in. And then the other thing is, you know, while they're doing this, they've got to have their eye on what's coming down the pipe, which is a huge contract for Patterson and probably a pretty big one for Quinn Hughes in two years too. And they're tight against the cap right now. So Chris Gear, the new assistant general manager and the new lead, well, he's not the new lead negotiator, but he's out front now. I mean, he's got legal his work stuff. cut out for him, huh? Legal stuff. I yeah, yeah. Well, legal say a contract stuff. He's not the copologist, though, as as I learned last night. I just thought, you know, I I kind of put him in as the new Lawrence Gilman, which made him all those things. But uh, Jonathan Wall's the copologist. Well, yeah, Jonathan is responsible for that part, and there are a lot of analytical stuff that goes into the assessment of yeah. what you should be paying these guys. And I think that's where there's been some symmetry in terms of, you know, let's have a more a direct route when we're talking about contracts because we talked the other day about the contracts that are up on the roster. There's 19 in the organization that need addressing. So you talk about an eye on what's going on down the pipe. All that, okay, fine. If they want Markstrom for, you know, he's going to want longer term, he's going to want more money. Now you've got the Demco question on top of, so what happens there? Is this is this an either or, or do you think they can keep both? I, I think they can if they get Markstrom at the at the number they want. But you know, here's the other really interesting part: when you look at the 31 teams uh, and their goaltending, it basically breaks down into into three areas. There's kind of the elite one, which is like Carey Price making 11 million, uh, Bobrovsky making 10. He's now he's a little different animal because you know he he, he was un, unrestricted. There's the high level. For the most part, the vast majority, and I can't, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 of the 16 teams, they're paying between five and a half and seven million for their goaltending. So that's the number one. That's the backup. So that's kind of the scenario, a, li- a little bit of what the Canucks envision, I think, where they sign uh, Markstrom again to that 5.5 and then bring, you know, Demko along. The other one, and this is what, this is the interesting part, there's the teams that just cheap out. That are paying virtually nothing for their goalie, and a great example of that is Columbus, who I can't even remember that they've got these two random Europeans they've thrown in, and they've been fine. 
They, they've given them an acceptable level of goaltending. So do the Canucks roll the dice and think Thatcher Demko and Mikey DiPietro or Thatcher Demko and, you know, take your pick of any one of Thomas Grice, whoever it might be. Can they give them that level of goaltending for, say, $4 million a year? Well, I, I think that's, the, that's an interesting yeah, one, isn't it? I think the interesting thing from a Canuck perspective, and this could be a really short conversation, if they walk into the room with Markstrom's representatives and say, well, Miko Koskinen in, in Edmonton is only making four and a half a year and his numbers are comparable to you. That's going to be a very short conversation. And the Braden Holtby at six million for a guy who's, you know, has a pedigree, yep. won a cup, but also hasn't been playing that well. So there's that, again, it's that six million dollar question. But I think the bigger one is, in the back of my mind, I think the Canucks are thinking, what happens here? What happens if Markstrom gets hurt? I mean, he's been very durable. 60 games apiece the last two years, he's very durable. But there's always always the what if with the Canucks. Markstrom gets hurt, and now it's Demko carrying the mail all the time, all the way in DiPietro. I think when it comes to the Seattle expansion draft, I you know I don't think it's something you go public with. There's got to be a side deal. Listen, don't touch our goalie, and we'll do you a favor. Right now, you could argue they got the best goaltending in the division, and this is something every team strives for. A 1A, 1B, well, whatever scenario you want. To, to Ed's point, though, uh, this is why I, I do find this, you know, and I love how the directions you guys have taken the, this subject, but I find this absolutely fascinating because, again, as we've talked about before, goaltenders have no trade value. <laughs> if yeah. you knew, yeah. and, and and the the, the goaltenders that you talked about there, Ed, Bobrovsky and, and Price, well, yeah, we're all expecting a Canadians-Panthers uh, Eastern Conference final, aren't we? This idea of paying, overpaying your goaltender Yet if you don't have it, and we've seen that sync Canucks teams of the past. So I, ju- I just think it's a it's an absolute conundrum in, in the NHL how you want to take your goaltending. I don't think there is one model that you take it to. You mentioned Braden Holtby. Well, sometimes when someone wins you a cup, you pay them afterwards as, as a reward. But I, I don't know. I, I don't see where it's going here. If you look at the Canucks numbers, and Ben, I know you got a bunch written down there. I mean, they're 14th in goals against. 11th in goals for, 19th in penalty kill, but it's that fourth overall in the NHL in their power play. They've just won, prior to yesterday, they won seven games in a row, they lose one, and they're technically out of a playoff spot. Now they have a couple of games in hand on Calgary, are only one point ahead, and they're actually even with Winnipeg, who, you know, by virtue of, I think, a coin flip at this point, gets them uh, that last spot, but... That margin is razor thin. Well, you know, and that's why I can't let go of this goaltending thing because... Well, goaltending for, and power for, play. Well, no, yeah, no, fair. And that's that's the recipe, really. That, that That's it. And, you know, contributions from the Tanner Pearson and Jake Vertanen's of the world. But, okay, so, you know, given... And I think we can all agree they've made strides this year. They've made some advancement. Do you roll the dice on that? You have a chance to secure the most important position in the team for a guy that you've spent five years trying to develop who finally seems to have emerged as that guy you wanted. Do you risk losing that and putting your faith in Thatcher Demko and Mikey DiPietro to save yourself probably in the neighborhood of $5 million for a team that is tight against the cap to begin with? So there's just so many variables in this equation. To me, it's absolutely fascinating. I just think there's this underlying thing within the Canuck organization about the what if. You know, is Jacob Markstrom a bona fide number one goalie? Some people will say, yeah, he's a good goalie. Uh, you won't put him in the conversation of the best goalies in the league. Yeah. Uh, we talked about injuries and subpar performance. 
Demko not having the body of work yet, and Di Pietro probably another couple of years away. There's always to, this underlying what if with the goaltending situation. And that's why, like Paul said, this is so fascinating. I don't know where they go contractually. I do believe they're going to say this, listen, just, you know, leave our goalies alone. We'll do you a favor in the expansion yeah. draft. I, I, just, I just one other thing, and then we, we can move on to this. But I, I was talking to Kevin Woodley, the goalie whisperer, right? And I said, and I, and I put, I, I, I put, you can't see this. This is good radio. I put my pointed finger up to his skull and say, I'm holding a gun to your head. Who's the best goalie in the NHL right now? And he thinks for a minute and he goes, Robin Lehner or Jordan Bennington? Now, you asked that question two, three years ago. <laughs> Jordan Bennington you, you was asked that question in the mind. a year yeah, and yeah, a week exactly, ago. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Goaltending, it, it's such a funny position. It's so many. You just well, never remember, know. And, you, and yes, there are guys. That are, they're, 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 there's the elite. Well, there was Patrick Waugh and Martin Brodeur, which kind of everyone well, said. Well, the need- modern equivalent of that is what? Henry, Henrik Lundqvist. Right. I think you put Price in there for his body. Right. No, but I'm just saying is back so, then, when you, when you had like Waugh and Brodeur almost single-handedly winning cups, I think the people were scrambling. We need a superstar goalie, a guy who will play, you know, 75% of our games and just drag us through the playoffs. And then teams put a lot of money in their goaltender. And they didn't have money for the other players and it hasn't worked since. Yeah, correct. No, I, th- no, I think that too, and it's a lot more than seventy-five percent. It was, you know, you're talking about starting goalies in that sixty-five to seventy game uh, range. Who, who, who's Broder's backup? Was it Craig Billington? He had one of the great careers. The, the Bunny LaRock no, of no, the nineties. No, 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 that's exactly who yeah. he was. He was playing 10, 15 games a year and getting a check and getting the Stanley Cup money. Jim Sorge of the <laughs> NHL. <laughs> yeah, you're right, and and I I I just wonder about the psychology of being Canucks, and and I think sometimes they kind of default to the worst case scenario just because it's been enacted so many times, and I think that's one. It's again, it's another kind of variable that plays out in this negotiation with 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 Markstrom. Does that give him an edge just because they're so shit scared of what might come? If if he goes and Demko turns out to be unready for it, and then and then everything they built up to over the last four years goes right down the tubes. I think they're you know history has shown us that they'll probably hitch their horse to Markstrom yeah, longer than maybe yeah. we yeah. can collectively I, I, I agree they should yeah. because of the scared whatever uh, of what could occur should he get hurt or he falls off and then what? Yep. We've got two great guys coming up, but. You know, and this is the funny thing about goaltending today. You know, it, it's it's a willingness to grasp things. A lot of guys don't really want to change their style. And Markstrom said he was, you know, kind of resistant to Ian Clark because he plays goalie a certain way. And now it's different stuff, the way you seal up the short side, the way you move post to post tracking, whatever. The one thing that Markstrom said about Demko, he's ahead of me. He's, he's grasped things a lot quicker than me. He's a better learner than me. He's a better student than me. But to Markstrom's credit, he's grudgingly accepted all this, and, and you see it in his play. He's, you know, there's not a lot of muffins. There's not that soft first goal. His glove hand's better than it used to be. His tracking's better than it used to be. But having said all that, it doesn't mean anything because, like you said earlier, Ed, there's this underlying thing about goaltending in Vancouver and a team that's trying to get to the dance for the first time in five years that needs to get to the dance. This isn't about, you know, it's going to be, it's, even if they get eliminated in five games, it's about taking that next step as an organization. And I think they're a little scared about that and what happens after. So let's look at their next 10. Obviously, on finishing this road trip, Florida, Buffalo, Minnesota, Winnipeg, then they're home for Arizona and uh, San Jose, or I think they're at San Jose, then the All-Star break, 
Uh, they then, are because I'm at San Jose. No, they are. They are really sorry. Yeah. And then, uh, then the All-Star break, then St. Louis, then at San Jose again, uh, and the Islanders in Carolina. And then they, you know, there's two more games on that, another road trip. So where are they at the end of those 10? So you touched on the one team I, I'm fascinated with, and that's the, that's, that's the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, they've got, they've got them four times. They haven't played them yet this no, year, which is so weird. No. But they've got them four times, and to me, that I've always kind of the over the last couple of years, I kind of like compared where the Canucks are to where the Coyotes are, and very similar. You know, they just tanked horribly for an extended period of time. Tried to build through the draft, seemed to have uh, accumulated some really nice pieces. Um, I think Arizona a little more aggressive in the in the trade market, getting Castle and then going after Tyler Hall, kind of trumps getting J.T. Miller, in my opinion. But it, to me, I, I, I this this I don't know if this stands up to scrutiny, but to me, if the Canucks finish ahead of the Arizona Coyotes, they're in the playoffs. Um, I, I, I think, I think it comes fair, down. I, I think it comes. Right to, yeah, you, I think you, it comes. You talked to about that. Kessel. Yeah. You talked about Hall. Yeah, you talked about Clayton Keller, who was there last year. The Canucks did not beat. The Coyotes I know. last year. They got two points yeah. out of the four meetings. So eight, two, there's six points. We know they finished nine points shy, 10 if you count the tiebreaker. But they couldn't beat them last year. And now it's a, even a better team. No, no, that's right. And I thought they were they were exposed last year yeah. against a, a really uh, disciplined, physical, well-coached Arizona team. They just kind of ground them down. And, and they're doing the same thing, only they've got a little more firepower. But that backhand of Arizona, and, 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 and it, I, remember, I remember talking to Jacob Chickern at the, uh, the Young Stars game when it was in Vancouver. And at that time, he seemed like a lot to be a top five pick. Mm-hmm. And I think he got hurt in his draft year, but he, he plummets all the way to 16th. I mean, he could emerge. That was also the Alevi draft. He could emerge as the best defenseman in that draft. Like, I mean, he's a top four guy now, and he's in, in, in his third year. Anyways, larger point is that they, they've got as good a blue line as any team in, in the West, in, in my opinion. So, again, this, this is what's up against the Canucks. And remember, Brad Richardson, that whiskey yeah. drinker, had five goals in the series <laughs> last year. <laughs> he was, well, he, the, what was the year he was the leading goal scorer with 15? Yeah, and I was, think they still that's finished ahead of Torch the Canucks. Went, Torch know. gave him the moniker. Yeah, yeah. Old school. Ben, where do you think they are in the next 10 games? Like last night, yeah. is, okay, it's a reckoning. It's against a very good team. Um, you know, a quick turnaround, uh, Eastern time zone, all that stuff. Uh, you're looking at the teams that they've got coming up the rest of this trip. Florida, Buffalo, Minnesota, Winnipeg. Not exactly murderers row, but not a bunch of cupcakes either. Every time I think I have the team figured out, Paul, they do something. Yeah. I expected them to lose in Tampa. I really did. I think this is coming. This is, a, this is like a prairie storm. I could see this one coming. They're not winning that game. But they're very likely to rebound and go into Florida and win. But um, I, I would say on this trip, the rest of this trip, uh, I say Buffalo is a very difficult game. And they never – do they ever win in Winnipeg, Ed? Is there something no. like – is it? No. I, I think no. It, no. maybe it's – No, it's I don't the curse know, of Thomas something. Steen. I don't know it's, what it is. It's the curse of the queen yeah, on the yeah. old <laughs> rink wall staring at them. The You're trough. not doing a line change. <laughs> the curse of the trough. <laughs> the cr- yeah. It's the you forks. Have, you have to know the Winnipeg Arena to I, I, understand that. I just oh, think – I do. The had a trough too, I should say. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's every time I think they're going to win a game, they lose it or they find ways to win games. I don't think they're going to win. So I think they'll be 500. I think they'll stay in the mix because like we talked about earlier, when you have the fourth ranked power play, and if you would move the puck a little bit better on PP1 and not be so predictable yeah. and get some movement there and not just collapse on guys who are going to shoot the puck and get some even strength scoring and, and some secondary scoring, I think they can be a 500 team in that stretch. I think they'll stay in the mix. 
Um, at this point of the year, and Ben, I know you just did a big sort of at the halfway mark point on us. Is there anyone who needs to step their game up in the second half specifically? Well, I think collectively. Uh, I still think, uh, I think as much as they improve the back end, I think it's a problem. Uh, I think whether it's, see, the funny thing about the Canucks, they, they try to push the pace and that doesn't work for them. So they try to get aggressive with playing a north-south game. And sometimes that involves being aggressive defensively. And Tyler Myers is turning the wrong way at the opposition blue line and you've got a breakaway. I just think their their biggest concerns are not moving the puck out because they got the get-out-of-jail-free card in Quinn Hughes. But when it comes to their defending, uh, boxing guys out, down low, and, and even the Tampa game, I think just to expose their lack of foot speed on the back end outside of Hughes, um, it's a concern. And knock on wood, Chris Tanner has, isn't hurt yet. Um, I thought, again, Alex Adler had a horrific game in Tampa. So that concerns me the most. It's their defending. It's their first decisions with the puck. I mean, Edler throws the puck right up the gut against Tampa. Beagle, it's intercepted. Boom, it's in the net. So I, my biggest concern, aside from even strength scoring, is is the way they defend. They're, they're not helping their goaltender. Ed, anyone for you you need to see? Yeah, for up? me it's Brock Besser yeah, because uh, I, 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 still, I, I still don't know who he is. And, and I've been watching him for what – this is his third year, right? Well, when he <laughs> when he stepped in and, well, and no, ended up and, being the MVP of the did. All-Star game, yes. and I know that's an exhibition, but – it's like wow, this—they've got a superstar here. No, no, and 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 that's just it. And 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 he's fine, but but they they need more from him than to be like a twenty-five goal, sixty-five point guy. He's playing on it, you know, and I know he's trending for a little more than that, but not a whole lot more. And I just I just haven't seen him um, be a difference maker. I've seen him being a nice complimentary piece, a nice piece on the power play. Works well with Patterson. Has made. Develop this playmaking aspect to his game, but he's a goal scorer. I mean, that's what he was advertised at, and that's what he certainly was looking at. And I just haven't seen that dimension that year, and that changes so many things. If he's a thirty-five goal guy, that changes so many things for the Canucks. That's a great point, Ed, because I, I talked to Besser uh, Christmas time in Calgary. I did an all editions piece on him about you talk to people around the NHL. The first thing they say about Besser is watch his stride. His first three, he doesn't have any explosiveness in his stride. So that means he can't do things off the rush. He has a hard time keeping up with Patterson and, and Miller when you see them moving up the ice. In year one, he was a guy who would take the puck, go around the offensive net and look for somebody, look at his options, take it to the net, shoot, score. I don't know how much that back injury comes into play. People have told me the problem with Besser, he doesn't really work on his skating in the summer. He works on all over. So he doesn't have a power skating coach per se. We know what Bo Horvat was like in year one. We yeah. know what Bo Horvat's like today. I've had people tell me his biggest problem is he doesn't dedicate himself enough. So I broached that topic with him. He said, well, if you do it enough in practice, if you're not, you know, just go hard on every drill, you should be okay. I think that's missing in his game because he's not getting into the positions. And maybe, maybe, you know, people have told me when you've had some sort of a back issue, it never, ever really goes away. So when you're planting your foot and where's mm. that puck going? Are you hesitating? Are you not picking your spots? And the other thing from the Canucks perspective is that they're so hard on him to be better defensively. Defensively, that he's got to get back and he's given it, you know, he was really bad at it last year in terms of just not getting, marking his man well enough. So he's concentrating a lot on that. And he, and he told me, well, you don't have to skate fast all the time. Well, I didn't quite understand that, but I think what he meant was you got to read the game better from an IQ perspective, have those short bursts. But I, I still believe that his skating is part of his problem. It's not getting him into the right positions. And maybe when he plants that foot, maybe there's still a little bit of a tug down there for some scar tissue. Ed, uh, switching gears, uh, you did write about the new Canucks um, AGM today. Mm. Um, 
this, I don't know if it was nitpicking or people just like to take shots. There was a lot made of the Canucks front office and how they maybe were cutting corners and cheaping out. They look like they're correcting that a little bit with some of their appointments. And I know they're internal, but it looks like they've got a little more structure in place now, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think when you look at it now, you're you're looking at a team that mirrors the accepted model in the NHL now, and I don't think you can accuse them of you know going overboard. And that that's fine if you've got good people in place. But you know, I I I, I don't think you can. Gear, look at the gear appointment in isolation. I think you have to take in Chris Higgins. I think you have to ex- look at the uh, uh, expanded analytic department. You've got like the two senior advisors now. They took Doug Jarvis from behind the bench and made him the kind of this like roving eye for the organization. Uh, Pro Scout Emeritus uh, kind of thing. And uh, they've always had a, a really deep scouting staff. So I, I just think I, I just... Uh, I just found the, the the timing really interesting of the gear announcement. Like, why now? And I just look at all the contracts they've got coming up. Um, some of the criticism they they, they took uh, last year for the threadbare operation they were running, and I I, I think it was uh, for gear, but I think there was also a message they were trying to send to the fan base. I like the fact that they didn't go outside the organization yep. and say, you know, we need a president of hockey ops or whatever you want to call it. The strength of any organization is to play to your strengths. I mean, a lot of talk about Judd Brackett. Well, maybe Judd Brackett should be the assistant general manager. He's done such a great job with the amateur scouting side. No, he's playing to his strength. We know what Jim Benning's all about. He's drafting. That's how he cut his way. Pretty good at player evaluation. John Weisbrod spends up to 200 days a year on the road scouting. So you've got guys playing to their strengths. I like what they, I think they have some really good symmetry now and pretty decent communication, and and everybody kind of, quite frankly, stay in your lane and do your job. We don't need to bring parachute somebody in. I think this was a great move. Patrick was uh, Patrick Johnson was so on me all the time about them not having the the award winners up to date painted on the wall. I was ready to go down there with a paintbrush myself and get it done. But his point was attention to detail and, and are people in, in pro sports today, you, you like you just can't sleep on anything. You need to be ahead of the curve all over the place now brings us to our final topic here. I was lucky enough to go with some friends who'd won a charity auction to the Pittsburgh game and be hosted in the Canuck alumni suite and uh, hosted by Darcy Roto, who was absolutely magnificent. Got to tip my hat to Darcy and he told some great stories. Um, also in the suite were like Doug Hallward, Harold Snaps, Kirk McClain, Gary Volk, a uh, bunch of the old trainers. Was there any beer drunk yeah. at that time? Well, uh, if you yeah, consider yeah, Budweiser or Bud Light beer, which was the funny thing, I think this is the way they've got going. Like the alumni suites at the very top in the in the end, but and it's like they don't have the GM place selection. You get the media meal, and they have their own boxes of Bud behind the counter. So I'm not sure what's going on there. However, yes, there was lots of beer drunk. I have to tip my hat to the organization in that they have embraced their past. They are bringing other people back into the fold. There's more pride in the organization top to bottom. While we were planning our part in this series and the promotions that we've done, I had a chance to meet with a lot of the Canucks or a marketing and social media team. They have got some fantastic talent there. Like this, this organization seems to have caught up in many ways. Uh, I know there were criticisms around the draft and how they ran things, but overall I look at what they've done embracing their alumni and there's a lot more to come now. And I know you guys have had some fun writing these stories and revisiting some of these old characters. It was long overdue, was it? 
Oh yeah, no, and 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 they've kind of like dipped their toe in that in that water a little before, but I I don't know if it's the fiftieth anniversary that's brought everything to a head. It just seems to me they've embraced it a lot more enthusiastically uh, than they have in in years past. And I I know just from like our point of view, it can sometimes be a little difficult trying to get a hold of people, but no, they've they've stepped right up. Um, I put a phone call in for uh, just tell Arthur Griffiths I, I want to get in touch with him, and about two hours later he he gave me a call. So I I, I think they see the value in the stories we're trying to tell here, and we certainly do. I and mean, Ben and I are both of kind of the same era when it was accessibility was a little different with these players, where you actually got to know got to know these players on a little more human level, where the exchange was a lot different than it was now. And to me, this is going. Go- Going back to the glory days of my youth, uh, not that like thirty years ago. Yeah, but but it has it has it's been really rewarding. And as a writer, that that's what you want. You want that access. You want the ability to mine these stories and really extract some stuff out of it. And that that's what this opportunity is has given. I would me. say, yeah, I would say as a former chapter chair of the Writers Association, I would say the PR department is uh, trending in the right direction. It's it's an ongoing process, whether it's the elevator or Wi-Fi or accessibility of players in today's uh, mass media, it's different. But what Paul touched on about the alumni, um, I I think they make great strides there. You know, it's interesting doing this 50th anniversary feature. And when you talk to players like Kirk McLean or Cliff Ronning about putting that jersey back on and being out there for the celebration nights and the anthem, they're quite emotional about it. And I, I think that says a lot because they gave a lot. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. You know, you give up a lot to be a pro athlete and to have the organization kind of, I'm not going to say come full circle, but get these guys back out maybe on the front burner in terms of uh, relationship-wise, sure. not just having alumni games, but ha- having them more visible and more accessible. And quite frankly for us, I mean, I've had a ball doing this series. I mean, my, my to this day, I'm, I'm still talking about tracking down Ron Settlebauer in Burlington, Ontario. And That's when he fantastic. finally opened up, he was unbelievable. Yep. So uh, uh, good on the Canucks and quite frankly, good on us for doing this. But what's what's fascinating is, and I'll, I'll immediately key our poster series where we've already had Bure, we had uh, Courtnell today, and we've got Dave Babich tomorrow. How did the Kurt Ridley poster sell by that? I'm sorry. Very well. I'm, I'm sorry for yeah. keep coming back yeah, to this. Very but well. I just love. And, and I will point out, you can go to the Connect store and you can get Kay these is nice. There a Kay Whitmore poster coming up next. Uh, okay. There might be. Working I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm no, sure there might that be. It would not um, surprise me. You can get these high gloss version of the posters if you're not collecting them uh, from the actual province paper. Uh, and they are having autograph signings at Rogers Arena, so you can get them through the Connect store. You can search out the Connect website as well. But what does fascinate me is we are we're, we're doing the stories to coincide with how they are celebrating um, the decades, and of course this is the '90s. And while we had the excitement of the team joining the NHL in the '70s, and then just the like the absolute dearth of success that was so funny in the '70s led to this false dawn, but these great characters around the '82 run, and then the team plummeting. When I look at what you guys have coming up, and I know you're doing one on on Pat Quinn, Ed, and Ben, you've got this great piece on Pavel Burry and his explosion into this team. I look at the 90s now, when I look at you, you had, you know, Quinn, Bure, Linden, the 94 run, you know, bringing in Mogilny, but then you had the crash at the end with Messier and Keenan, and maybe the worst era of Canucks hockey we've ever seen. Like when I'm looking at these decades now, the 90s was fascinating. No, no, I, I, and you're right because I'm sorry. When I think of the '90s, the Canucks, I, I, I think of the Pat Quinn teams. 
it, which really only goes to what ninety four ninety five. And when, well, when, when, they, when does the fun start? It's ninety six ninety seven is when it kind of all starts to go haywire, right? right? Because they because that's the that's the first Messier year. Well, I funny believe. thing is they changed the uniforms. They moved into their own yeah. building. Yeah. Um, and. They Quinn famously told the story. They went out and got McGillney and thought the NHL was trending that way, and that's where to revisit Brodeur and the Devils. Mm -hmm. It's like the league right. had the, they right. had the rug pulled out from them. But that that team was terrible late nineties. But you're right. When you think of nineties, you think of the skate. You don't think of the whale. Yeah, no, no, no. That's right. And and, and it is. And, and again, like so, I'm I'm just starting the the Pat Quinn. So so that's kind of you know the, the area of my focus. But you know, as Ben and I were were were, were saying. It's not only the accessibility, it's the willingness of these people to tell their stories, which is just so great and so refreshing. Um, and I'll just reference the – I had a conversation with Arthur Griffiths for about 15 minutes about the circumstances around Pat's hiring. And he tells this you – know, he told a couple of great stories, but he tells, tells this great story about uh, meeting him and he's coaching the LA Kings at the time. So there's some subterfuge going on. So they arranged to meet in San Diego. And if people haven't been to San Diego, the Del Coronado Hotel is this amazing landmark on the water. It's this big, huge dome from the turn, turn of the – 19th, yeah, right at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and he meets there and he describes a scene, you know, with Pat smoking a cigar the size of a canoe and going back and forth. And then Pat finally stopped. Frank Griffiths is there, the owner of the, of the team at the time. Um, Pat stops and says, well, what do you want out of this? And Frank Griffiths says, I just want you to bring us back towards respectability. And when you think of where the Canucks had been for the previous uh, really since the 82 run, which is such a one-off anyways. But, you know, they've just been dreadful, really, throughout most of their existence. And Pat gave them that credibility uh, that they'd been searching for. Yeah, just a really kind of neat moment in, in the franchise's history. Yeah, we're transferring into that interesting late 90s time where uh, I think when I was just doing some part-time stuff on the beat during Mike Keenan's reign of whatever, uh, I thought I was better served just to go to YVR and look for somebody carrying a hockey bag because <laughs> I think there were 19 transactions that one month and anybody who had the secret decoder message ring from Mike was coming to play for the Canucks. So what a transition. No, well, yeah. So I, I remember the, the All-Star game was in Vancouver and yeah, I, yeah. Came in as an out of, yeah, I came in as an out-of-towner that year to kind of access the damage. I was actually doing a lot of freelance work. So it was the New York Times. I'm not name dropping. I did really was, and they they sent me here to really do it because because Messi was in Vancouver and what what had gone wrong. So I did that, and then lo and behold, I got the job here some months later. So I was in year two of the uh, of the Keenan reign, but Brian Burke's first year and uh, Mardi Gras broke out. And it was, the trades had all all happened by then. So all all like the craziest stuff. I think on par it happened. Most of it had happened the year before, but there was still a lot left in the bag that year. Uh, not the least of which was, of course, uh, Brian telling everybody that the clock doesn't start ticking on Mike Keenan until we trade Pavel Bure and trading him two games after that deal is made. So it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, fun for all. Um, just as we finish up, I don't want to do the get off my lawn segment, but you know, as you as we are revisiting history, and I remember you telling me several times you'd be on the road and you're walking back into the hotel maybe after dinner and, and there's Burke sitting at the hotel bar and say, come over here. Does that kind of stuff ever happen today? 
Well, Ben's on the road a lot more. I think it's harder to get him out of the bar than have <laughs> my, my favorite. This is great. One, one of the greatest stops in the league, and, and people don't understand this, is Minnesota, St. Paul. The yeah. turn of the century hotel, yeah, yeah, the grill, yeah. the rink's a block away. One year I'm flying from Washington before our latest travel agency was somebody before who booked me on an airline that didn't exist. So I eventually got to the St. Paul Hotel late afternoon, couldn't wait to have a shower, go down, have a decent meal. The phone rings, not the cell phone, the phone rings, okay? It's Tony Gallagher, our ex-colleague going, Trevor effing Linden? So I knew at that minute, no shower, down to the lobby, players are going, coming from dinner, they didn't even know about it. Write that version, go back down, find more guys. I got to get Crow. Crow's in the bar. He's, he's reluctant to come out. He eventually comes out. Wrote version number two. That's it. That's a great night. I'm going to go have a meal. Who walks in the front door of the hotel? Trevor Linden. Story number three. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. I, I just think from that perspective, uh, I occasionally see people in an establishment. And if I do, I leave it <laughs> because yeah. I think you want to keep a professional distance uh, with players and even management. Well, um, especially in this yeah. day and age, there yeah. was a time when I'd be very comfortable having yeah. a drink in the hotel bar. But it, 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 it's not anymore. We covered the uh, 2007, there's year Anaheim won, won the Stanley Cup, but there was a bunch of out-of-towners because they were playing Calgary in the first round and were in, in, in the, uh, and actually it was a nightly occurrence. Uh, we'd sit around with, with Berkey and uh, and uh, Chuck Fletcher, who was his, his assistant general manager, whoever else. Uh, Bob Murray was there a couple of nights too, um, and there were there was me and Terry Jones and Cam Cole, like guys who'd been around a little bit, and then we we would sit there for three four hours. Just he'd tell stories, he'd hold court, you know. People would tell their own stories, and I remember turning to Brian and said, you know, there's not a lot of people in this day and age you could do this with, and that was like 12 years ago. So try and imagine it now. But I want I want to get Ben to tell. It's my favorite Mark Crawford story, the story of Mark Crawford in Atlanta, the the, the summer crow story where he's holding court in the bar. This and is crazy. I mean, it's Atlanta, they, and, it, and it was back in the day when the team used to book a lot of our hotels. And the next thing you know, we're staying at the Ritz Carlton, and I'm like, are you kidding me? So I come out, and I'm trying to figure out where to go for dinner and Elliot Papp, a former colleague at the Vancouver Sun, came up behind me and he's kind of like sheepishly wondering what we should do. Mark Crawford comes up behind us and says, let's go. And I went, okay. We go back into the hotel, the long lobby bar. Uh, they're going back into where the good wine is, decanted. So suddenly I've got this glass of wine I could never afford. The next thing you know, Crow wants uh, the guy to get the Cubans out, even though they weren't supposed to serve Cubans. I'm sitting at the bar sipping this ridiculously velvety red wine with a Cuban cigar. And Elliot Papp is beside me and he's like, can't even believe what's going on. And we talked a lot that night, a lot about hockey, a lot about life in general. I thought, man, whoa, whoa, this is great. I mean, what a great way to get to know the coach. The next night they lost to the Thrashers and the infamous Dean Sylvester Sylvester. scored three (laughs) effing goals. So needless to say... That night with Crow, that night never <laughs> happened again. And nothing even close to that because our, our relationship with Crow was really uh, uh, tenuous at best. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of colorful language. But uh, yeah, that was that was a rare occurrence to actually, it was like I was in a twilight zone sitting in that bar with Mark Crawford that night. Well, like expensive cigars and wine, it's a long way from my stories where Joe Pow Pow with the BC Lions, knew the team had gone into receivership. So we said, we can spend what we want on the credit card. Who wants to come to the keg? (laughs) 
A little bit different. We'll leave that there, uh, everyone. Thanks for listening. Again, you can watch our Whitetail videos at theprovince.com, VancouverSun.com. Read Ed and Ben's insight every day at our uh, at our websites or pick up the printed product, uh, continue with our poster series. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you guys next week.